Chapter Fourteen of the Reverberator by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. When Gaston Probert came that evening, he was received by Dawson and Delia, and when he asked where Francie might be, was told by the latter that she would show herself in half an hour. Francie had instructed her sister that as their friend would have, first of all, information to give their father about the business he had transacted in America, he wouldn't care for a lot of women in the room. When Delia reported this speech to Mr. Dawson, that gentleman protested that he wasn't in any hurry for the business. What he wanted to find out most was whether Mr. Probert had a good time, whether he had liked it over there. Gaston might have liked it, but he didn't look as if he had had a very good time. His face told of reverses, of suffering, and Delia declared to him that if she hadn't received his assurance to the contrary, she would have believed he was right down sick. He allowed that he had been very sick at sea, and was still feeling the effect of it, but insisted that there was nothing the matter with him now. He sat for some time with Mr. Dawson and Delia, and never once alluded to the cloud that hung over their relations. The girl had schooled her father to a waiting attitude on this point, and the manner in which she had descended on him in the morning, after Mr. Flack had come upstairs, was a lesson he wasn't likely soon to forget. It had been impressed on him that she was indeed wiser than he could pretend to be, and he was now mindful that he mustn't speak of the piece in the paper unless young Probert should speak of it first. When Delia rushed down to him in the court, she began by asking him categorically whom he had wished to do good to by sending Mr. Flack up to their parlour, to Francie or to her. Why, the way they felt then, they detested his very name. To Mr. Flack himself? Why, he had simply exposed him to the biggest snub he had ever got in his life. Well, hanged if I understand, poor Mr. Dawson had said. I thought you liked the piece. You think it's so queer they don't like it. They, in the parlance of the Dawsons, now never met anything but the Probert in Congress assembled. I don't think anything's queer but you, Delia had retorted and she had let her father know that she had left Francie in the very act of handling Mr. Flack. "'Is that so?' the old gentleman had quavered in an impotence that made him wince with a sense of meanness, meanness to his bold initiator of so many Parisian hours. Francie's visitor came down a few minutes later, and passed through the court and out of the hotel without looking at them. Mr. Dawson had been going to call after him, but Delia checked him with a violent pinch. The unsociable manner of the young journalist's departure deepened Mr. Dawson's dull ache over the mystery of things. I think this may be said to have been the only incident in the whole business that gave him a personal pang. He remembered how many of his cigars he had smoked with Mr. Flack, and how universal a participant he had made him. This haughtiness struck him as the failure of friendship, not the publication of details about the Proberts. Interwoven with Mr. Dawson's nature, was the view that if these people had done bad things, they ought to be ashamed of themselves, and he couldn't pity them, and that if they hadn't done them, there was no need of making such a rumpus about other people's knowing. It was, therefore, in spite of the young man's rough exit, still in the tone of American condemnation that he had observed to Delia. He says that's what they're like over here, and that it stands to reason that if you start a paper, you've got to give them what they like. If you want the people with you, you've got to be with the people. Well, there are a good many people in the world. I don't think the Proberts are with us much. 
"'Oh, he doesn't mean them,' said Mr. Dawson. "'Well, I do,' cried Delia. At one of the ormolu tables, near a lamp with a pink shade, Gaston insisted on making at least a partial statement. He didn't say that he might never have another chance, but Delia felt with despair that this idea was in his mind. He was very gentle, very polite, but distinctly cold, she thought. He was intensely depressed, and for half an hour uttered not the least little pleasantry. There was no particular occasion for that when he talked about preferred bonds with her father. This was a language Delia couldn't translate, though she had heard it from childhood. He had a great many papers to show Mr. Dawson, records of the mission of which he had acquitted himself, but Mr. Dawson pushed them into the drawer of the ormolu table with the remark that he guessed they were all right. Now, after the fact, he appeared to attach but little importance to Gaston's achievements, an attitude which Delia perceived to be slightly disconcerting to their visitor. Delia understood it. She had an instinctive sense that her father knew a great deal more than Gaston could ever tell him about the work he had committed to him, and also that there was in such punctual settlements an eagerness, a literalism, totally foreign to Mr. Dawson's domestic habits, and to which he would even have imputed a certain pettifogging provinciality, treatable, however, with dry humour. If Gaston had cooled off, he wanted at least to be able to say that he had rendered them services in America. But now her father, for the moment at least, scarcely appeared to think his services worth speaking of, an incident that left him with more of the responsibility for his cooling. What Mr. Dawson wanted to know was how everything had struck him over there, especially the picket-building, and the parlour-cars, and Niagara, and the hotels he had instructed him to go to, giving him an introduction in two or three cases to the gentleman in charge of the office. It was in relation to these themes that Gaston was guilty of a want of spring, as the girl phrased it to herself, that he could produce no appreciative expression. He declared, however, repeatedly, that it was a most extraordinary country, most extraordinary and far beyond anything he had had any conception of. Of course, I didn't like everything, he said, any more than I like everything anywhere. Well, what didn't you like? Mr. Dawson inquired at this, after a short silence. Gaston Probert made his choice. Well, the light, for instance. The light? The electric? No, the solar. I thought it rather hard, too much like the scratching of a slate pencil. As Mr. Dawson hereupon looked vague, and rather as if the reference were to some enterprise, a great lamp company, of which he had not heard, conveying a suggestion that he was perhaps staying away too long, Gaston immediately added, I really think Francie might come in. I wrote to her that I wanted particularly to see her. I'll go and call her. I'll make her come, said Delia at the door. She left her companions together, and Gaston returned to the subject of Mr. Munster, Mr. Dawson's former partner, to whom he had taken a letter, and who had shown him every sort of civility. Mr. Dawson was pleased at this. Nevertheless, he broke out suddenly, "'Look here, you know, if you've got anything to say that you don't think very acceptable, you had better say it to me.' Gaston changed colour, but his reply was checked by Delia's quick return. She brought the news that her sister would be obliged if he would go into the little dining-room. He would find her there. She had something for his ear that she could mention only in private. It was very comfortable. There was a lamp and a fire. 
"'Well, I guess she can take care of herself,' Mr. Dawson at this commented with a laugh. "'What does she want to say to him?' he asked when Gaston had passed out. "'Gracious, no, she won't tell me. But it's too flat at his age to live in such terror.' "'In such terror?' "'Why, of your father. You've got to choose.' "'How to choose?' "'Why, if there's a person you like and he doesn't like.' "'You mean you can't choose your father,' said Mr. Dawson thoughtfully. "'Of course you can't.' "'Well, then, please don't like anyone. But perhaps I should like him,' he added, faithful to his easier philosophy. "'I guess you'd have to,' said Delia. In the small salle à manger, where Gaston went in, Francie was standing by the empty table, and as soon as she saw him she began. You can't say I didn't tell you I should do something. I did nothing else from the first, I mean but tell you. So you were warned again and again. You knew what to expect. Ah, don't say that again. If you knew how it acts on my nerves, the young man groaned. You speak as if you had done it on purpose, to carry out your absurd threat. Well, what does it matter when it's all over? It's not all over. Would to God it were. The girl stared. Don't you know what I sent for you to come in here for? To bid you good-bye. He held her an instant, as if in unbelievable view, and then said, Francie, what on earth has got into you? he broke out. What deviltry, what poison! It would have been strange and sad to an observer, the opposition of these young figures, so fresh, so candid, so meant for confidence, but now standing apart and looking at each other in a wan defiance that hardened their faces. "'Don't they despise me? Don't they hate me? You do yourself. Certainly you'll be glad for me to break off and spare you decisions and troubles impossible to you.' "'I don't understand. It's like some hideous dream,' Gaston Probert cried. "'You act as if you were doing something for a wager, and you make it worse by your talk. I don't believe it. I don't believe a word of it. "'What don't you believe?' she asked. "'That you told him, that you told him knowingly. If you'll take that back, it's too monstrous. If you'll deny it and give me your assurance that you were practised upon and surprised, everything can still be arranged.' "'Do you want me to lie?' asked Francie Dawson. "'I thought you'd like pleasant words.' "'Oh, Francie, Francie!' moaned the wretched youth, with tears in his eyes. "'What can be arranged? What do you mean by everything?' she went on. "'Why, they'll accept it. They'll ask for nothing more. It's your participation they can't forgive.' "'They can't? Why do you talk to me of them? I'm not engaged to them,' she said, with a shrill little laugh. "'Oh, Francie, I am. And it's they who are buried beneath that filthy rubbish.' She flushed at this characterization of Mr. Flack's epistle, but returned as with more gravity. I'm very sorry, very sorry indeed, but evidently I'm not delicate. He looked at her, helpless and bitter. It's not the newspapers in your country that would have made you so. Lord, they're too incredible, and the ladies have them on their tables. You told me we couldn't hear that the Paris ones are too bad, said Francie. Bad they are, God knows, but they've never published anything like that poured forth such a flood of impudence on decent, quiet people who only want to be left alone. Francie sank to a chair by the table, as if she were too tired to stand longer, and with her arms spread out on the lamplit plush, she looked up at him. Was it there you saw it? 
He was on his feet opposite, and she made at this moment the odd reflection that she had never realized he had such fine, lovely, uplifted eyebrows. Yes, a few days before I sailed. I hated them from the moment I got there. I looked at them very little, but that was a chance. I opened the paper in the hall of a hotel. There was a big marble floor and spittoons, and my eyes fell on that horror. It made me ill. Did you think it was me? she patiently gaped. About as soon as I supposed it was my father. But I was too mystified, too tormented. Then why didn't you write to me if you didn't think it was me? Write to you? I wrote to you every three days, he cried. Not after that. Well, I may have omitted a post at the last. I thought it might be Delia, Gaston added in a moment. Oh, she didn't want me to do it. The day I went with him, the day I told him. She tried to prevent me, Francie insisted. Would to God that she had, he wailed. Haven't you told them she's delicate too? she asked in her strange tone. He made no answer to this. He only continued. What power in heaven's name has he got over you? What spell has he worked? He's a gay old friend. He helped us ever so much when we were first in Paris. But, my dearest child, what gaieties, what friends, what a man to know! If we hadn't known him, we shouldn't have known you. Remember, it was Mr. Flack who brought us that day to Mr. Waterlow's. Oh, you'd have come some other way, said Gaston, who made nothing of that. Not in the least. We knew nothing about any other way. He helped us in everything. He showed us everything. That was why I told him when he asked me. I liked him for what he had done. Gaston, who had now also seated himself, listened to this attentively. I see. It was a kind of delicacy. Oh, a kind! She desperately smiled. He remained a little while with his eyes on her face. Was it for me? Of course it was for you. Ah, how strange you are! He cried with tenderness. Such contradictions! On s'y perd! I wish you'd say that to them, that way. Everything would be all right. Never, never, said the girl. I've wronged them, and nothing will ever be the same again. It was fatal. If I felt as they do, I too would loathe the person who should have done such a thing. It doesn't seem to me so bad, the thing in the paper, but you know best. You must go back to them. You know best, she repeated. They were the last, the last people in France to do it to. The sense of desecration, of pollution, you see, he explained as if for conscience. Oh, you needn't tell me. I saw them all there, she answered. It must have been a dreadful scene. But you didn't brave them, did you? Brave them? What are you talking about? To you that idea is incredible, she then hopelessly sighed. But he wouldn't have this. No, no, I can imagine cases. He clearly had some vision of independence, though he looked awful about it. But this isn't a case, eh? she demanded. Well, then, go back to them. Go back, she repeated. At this he half threw himself across the table to seize her hands, but she drew away, and as he came nearer, pushed her chair back, springing up. You know you didn't come here to tell me you're ready to give them up. To give them up? He only echoed it with all his woe at first. I've been battling with them till I'm ready to drop. You don't know how they feel, how they must feel. Oh, yes, I do. All this has made me older every hour. It has made you so extraordinarily more beautiful, said Gaston Probert. 
I don't care. Nothing will induce me to consent to any sacrifice. Some sacrifice there must be. Give me time, give me time, I'll manage it. I only wish they hadn't seen you there in the bois. In the bois? That Marguerite hadn't seen you, with that lying blackguard. That's the image they can't get over. Well, it was as if it had been the thing she had got herself most prepared for, so that she must speak accordingly. I see you can't either, Gaston. Anyway, I was there, and I felt it all right. That's all I can say. You must take me as I am, said Francie Dawson. Don't, don't, you infuriate me, he pleaded, frowning. She had seemed to soften, but she was in a sudden flame again. Of course I do, and I shall do it again. We're too terribly different. Everything makes you so. You can't give them up, ever, ever. Good-bye, good-bye, that's all I wanted to tell you. I'll go and throttle him, the young man almost howled. Very well, go. Good-bye. She had stepped quickly to the door, and had already opened it, vanishing as she had done the other time. Francie, Francie, he supplicated, following her into the passage. The door was not the one that led to the salon. It communicated with the other apartments. The girl had plunged into these. He already heard her push a sharp bolt. Presently he went away without taking leave of Mr. Dawson and Delia. "'Why, he acts just like Mr. Flack,' said the old man, when they discovered that the interview in the dining-room had come to an end. The next day was a bad one for Charles Waterlow, his work in the Avenue du Villiers being terribly interrupted. Gaston Probert invited himself to breakfast at noon, and remained till the time at which the artist usually went out, an extravagance partly justified by the previous separation of several weeks. During these three or four hours Gaston walked up and down the studio, while Waterlow either sat or stood before his easel. He put his host vastly out and acted on his nerves, but this easy genius was patient with him by reason of much pity, feeling the occasion indeed more of a crisis in the history of the troubled youth than the settlement of one question would make it. Waterlow's compassion was slightly tinged with contempt, for there was being settled, above all it seemed to him, and alas, in the wrong sense, the question of his poor friend's character. Gaston was in a fever, he broke out into passionate pleas, he relapsed into gloomy silences, he roamed about continually, his hands in his pockets, and his hair in a tangle. He could take neither a decision nor a momentary rest. It struck his companion more than ever before that he was, after all, essentially a foreigner. He had the foreign sensibility, the sentimental candour, the need for sympathy, the communicative despair. A true young Anglo-Saxon would have buttoned himself up in his embarrassment, and been dry and awkward and capable, and however conscious of a pressure, unconscious of a drama. Whereas Gaston was effusive and appealing and ridiculous and graceful, natural above all and egotistical. Indeed, a true young Anglo-Saxon wouldn't have known the particular acuteness of such a quandary, for he wouldn't have parted to such an extent with his freedom of spirit. It was the fact of this surrender on his visitor's part that excited Waterlow's secret scorn. Family feeling was all very well, but to see it triumph as a superstition calling for the blood sacrifice made him feel he would as soon be a blackamoor on his knees before a fetish. He now measured for the first time the root it had taken in Gaston's nature. 
To act like a man, the hope of the Proberts must pull up the root, even if the operation should be terribly painful, should be attended with cries and tears and contortions, with baffling scruples and a sense of sacrilege, the sense of siding with strangers against his own flesh and blood. Now and again he broke out. And if you should see her as she looks just now, she's too lovely, too touching. You'd see how right I was originally, when I found her such a revelation of that rare type, the French Renaissance, you know, the one we talked about. But he reverted with at least equal frequency to the oppression he seemed unable to throw off, the idea of something done of cruel purpose and malice with a refinement of outrage. Such an accident to them, of all people on earth, the very last, the least thinkable, those who, he verily believed, would feel it more than any family in the world. When Waterlow asked what made them of so exceptionally fine a fibre, he could only answer that they just happened to be, not enviably if one would. It was his father's influence and example, his very genius, the worship of privacy and good manners, a hatred of all the new familiarities and profanations. The artist sought to know further, at last and rather wearily, what, in two words, was the practical question his friend desired he should consider. Whether he should be justified in throwing the girl over? Was that the issue? Gracious goodness, no! For what sort of sneak do you take me? She made a mistake, but any innocent young creature might do that. It's whether it strikes you I should be justified in throwing them over. It depends upon the sense you attach to justification. I mean, should I be miserably unhappy? Would it be in their power to make me so? To try, certainly, if they're capable of anything so nasty. The only fair play for them is to let you alone, Waterlow wound up. Ah, they won't do that. They like me too much, Gaston ingenuously cried. It's an odd way of liking. The best way to show their love will be to let you marry where your affections and so many other charming things are involved. Certainly, only they question the charming things. They feel she represents, poor little dear, such dangers, such vulgarities, such possibilities of doing other dreadful things, that it's upon them, I mean on those things, my happiness would be shattered. Well, the elder man rather dryly said, if you yourself have no secrets for persuading them of the contrary, I'm afraid I can't teach you one. Yes, I ought to do it myself, Gaston allowed, in the candour of his meditations. Then he went on in his torment of hesitation. They never believed in her from the first. My father was perfectly definite about it. At heart they never accepted her. They only pretended to do so because I guaranteed her instincts. That's what I did, heaven help me and that she was incapable of doing a thing that could ever displease them. Then no sooner was my back turned than she perpetrated that." "'That was your folly,' Waterlow remarked, painting away. "'My folly? To turn my back?' "'No, no, to guarantee.' "'My dear fellow, wouldn't you?' And Gaston stared. "'Never in the world.' "'You'd have thought her capable?' "'Capabilissima, and I shouldn't have cared.' Do you think her then capable of breaking out again in some new way that's as bad? I shouldn't care if she was. That's the least of all questions. The least? Ah, don't you see, wretched youth, cried the artist, pausing from his work and looking up, 
Don't you see that the question of her possibilities is as nothing compared to that of yours? She's the sweetest young thing I ever saw, but even if she happened not to be, I should still urge you to marry her in simple self-preservation." Gaston kept echoing. In self-preservation? To save from destruction the last scrap of your independence. That's a much more important matter even than not treating her shabbily. They're doing their best to kill you morally, to render you incapable of individual life." Gaston was immensely struck. "'They are, they are!' he declared with enthusiasm. "'Well, then, if you believe it, for heaven's sake go and marry her to-morrow.' Waterlow threw down his implements and added, "'And come out of this into the air.' Gaston, however, was planted in his path on the way to the door. And if she goes again and does the very same? The very same, Waterlow thought. I mean, something else is barbarous and is hard to bear. Well, said Waterlow, you'll at least have got rid of your family. Yes, if she lets me in again, I shall be glad they're not there. They're right, pourtant, they're right, Gaston went on, passing out of the studio with his friend. They're right? It was unimaginable that she should. Yes, thank heaven. It was the finger of Providence, Providence taking you off your guard to give you a chance. This was ingenious, but though he could glow for a moment in response to it, Francie's lover, if lover he may in his so infirm aspect be called, looked as if he mistrusted it, thought it slightly sophistical. What really shook him, however, was his companion saying to him in the vestibule, when they had taken their hats and sticks and were on the point of going out, "'Lord, man, how can you be so impenetrably dense? Don't you see that she's really of the softest, finest material that breathes, that she's a perfect flower of plasticity, that everything you may have an apprehension about will drop away from her like the dead leaves from a rose, and that you may make of her any perfect and enchanting thing you yourself have the wit to conceive? Ah, my dear friend! And poor Gaston, with another of his revulsions, panted for gratitude. The limit will be yours, not hers, Waterlow added. No, no, I've done with limits, his friend ecstatically cried. That evening at ten o'clock Gaston presented himself at the Hôtel de l'Univers et de Cheltenham, and requested the German waiter to introduce him into the dining-room attached to Mr. Dawson's apartments, and then go and tell Miss Francina that he awaited her there. "'Oh, you'll be better there than in the salon. They've filled it with their luggage,' said the man, who always addressed him in an intention of English, and wasn't ignorant of the tie that united the visitor to the amiable American family, or perhaps even of the modifications it had lately undergone. "'With their luggage?' "'They leave to-morrow morning. Ah, I don't think they themselves know for where, sir.' Please, then, say to Miss Francina that I've called on the most urgent business, and am extraordinarily pressed." The special ardour possessing Gaston at that moment belonged to the order of the communicative, but perhaps the vividness with which the waiter placed this exhibition of it before the young lady is better explained by the fact that her lover slipped a five-franc piece into his hand. She, at any rate, entered his place of patience sooner than Gaston had ventured to hope though she corrected her promptitude a little, by stopping short and drawing back when she saw how pale he was, and how he looked as if he had been crying. 
"'I've chosen, I've chosen,' he said expressively, smiling at her in denial of these indications. "'You've chosen?' "'I've had to give them up. But I like it so better than having to give you up. I took you at first with their assent. That was well enough. It was worth trying for. But now I take you without it. We can live that way, too.' "'Ah, I'm not worth it. You give up too much,' Francie returned. "'We're going away. It's all over.' She averted herself quickly, as if to carry out her meaning, but he caught her more quickly still, and held her, held her fast and long. She had only freed herself when her father and sister broke in from the salon, attracted, apparently, by the audible commotion. "'Oh, I thought you had at least knocked over the lamp,' Delia exclaimed. "'You mistake me with you if you're going away, Mr. Dawson,' Gaston said. "'I'll start whenever you like.' "'All right. Where shall we go?' that amiable man asked. "'Hadn't you decided that?' "'Well, the girls said they'd tell me.' "'We were going home,' Francie brought out. "'No, we weren't. Not a wee mite,' Delia professed. "'Oh, not there,' Gaston murmured, with a look of anguish at Francie. "'Well, when you've fixed it, you can take the tickets,' Mr. Dawson observed with detachment. "'To some place where there are no newspapers, darling,' Gaston went on. "'I guess you'll have hard work to find one,' Mr. Dawson pursued. "'Dear me, we needn't read them any more. We wouldn't have read that one if your family hadn't forced us,' Delia said to her prospective brother-in-law. "'Well, I shall never be forced. I shall never again in my life look at one.' he very gravely declared. "'You'll see, sir, you'll have to,' Mr. Dawson cheerfully persisted. "'No, you'll tell us enough.' Francie had kept her eyes on the ground. The others were all now rather unnaturally smiling. "'Won't they forgive me ever?' she asked, looking up. "'Yes, perfectly, if you can persuade me not to stick to you. But in that case what good will their forgiveness do you?' "'Well, perhaps it's better to pay for it,' the girl went on. "'To pay for it?' "'By suffering something, for it was dreadful,' she solemnly, gloomily said. "'Oh, for all you'll suffer,' Gaston protested, shining down on her. "'It was for you, only for you, as I told you,' Francie returned. "'Yes, don't tell me again. I don't like that explanation. I ought to let you know that my father now declines to do anything for me.' the young man added to Mr. Dawson. "'To do anything for you? To make me any allowance?' "'Well, that makes me feel better. We don't want your father's money, you know,' this more soothable parent said, with his mild sturdiness. "'There'll be enough for all, especially if we economize in newspapers.' Delia carried it elegantly off. "'Well, I don't know, after all. The reverberator came for nothing her father as gaily returned. "'Don't you be afraid he'll ever send it now,' she shouted in her return of confidence. "'I'm very sorry, because they were all lovely,' Francie went on to Gaston with sad eyes. "'Let us wait to say that till they come back to us,' he answered somewhat sententiously. He really cared little at this moment whether his relatives were lovely or not. "'I'm sure you won't have to wait long,' Delia remarked with the same cheerfulness. "'Till they come back?' Mr. Dawson repeated. "'Ah, they can't come back now, sir. We won't take them in.' 
The words fell from his lips with a fine unexpected austerity which imposed itself, producing a momentary silence, and it is a sign of Gaston's complete emancipation that he didn't in his heart resent this image of eventual favours denied his race. The resentment was rather delious, but she kept it to herself, for she was capable of reflecting with complacency that the key of the house would after all be hers, so that she could open the door for the Proberts if the Proberts should knock. Now that her sister's marriage was really to take place, her consciousness that the American people would have been resoundingly told so was still more agreeable. The party left the Hôtel de l'Univers et de Cheltenham on the morrow, but it appeared to the German waiter, as he accepted another five-franc piece from the happy and now reckless Gaston, that they were even yet not at all clear as to where they were going. End of chapter 14 End of the Reverberator